I'd like to begin tonight with uh, one of my favorite stories, and it's kind of in the myth realm. If you've been here, you might, I think I shared this a couple of years ago, it's a great one. And it's a King Arthur story, and and in it, um, King Arthur encountered an enemy, a knight who had great powers, and he cast a, this cast a big spell over uh, King Arthur that kind of created so much inner terror that he became powerless. And then he was offered his life back, and the only way he could get his life back was if he returned in seven days with the correct answer to a question. So it's one of those kind of setups. And the question was, what is it that all women most desire? Maybe I should stop here and we could just try seeing what we think. <laughs> what is it that most women... And there's many jokes that start with that. <laughs> so, okay, so now I'm going to read you a little of this. So um, he, after he got that question, he agreed that he'd go and try to figure out the answer. And he had a week. And so he asked everyone that he encountered... And um, he asked the girl herding geese and the alewife and great ladies. And, and they all gave him an answer, but none of the answers really rang true. So final morning, he still didn't have what he knew was going to be the right answer. So he turned towards the king's castle, the knight's castle. And he had a heavy heart because he knew that he, he was a man of honor and he knew he had to submit and die. So not far from the king's castle, now I'm reading... Arthur heard a woman's voice, and it was sweet and soft, calling out to him, Now God's greeting to you, my lord King Arthur. God save and keep you. And he turned and saw a woman in a vivid scarlet gown, the color of holy berries, sitting on a mound of earth beside the road between an oak and a holly tree. And at the sight of her, shock ran through the king, for in the instant between hearing and seeing, he had expected the owner of the soft voice to be fair. And she was the most hideous creature he had ever seen, with a piteous nightmare face that he could scarcely bear to look upon, sprouting a long wart-covered nose bent to one side and a long hairy chin bent to the other, and she only had one eye, and that was set under, deep under a jutting brow. Her mouth was no more than a shapeless gash, her hair hung in gray twisted locks, and the hands were like brown claws, though the jewels that sparkled on her fingers were fine enough for the queen herself. So you get the image, you know. <laughs> In his amazement, Arthur is struck dumb, and he has to be reminded of it by the code of chivalry and how a knight is to comport himself in the presence of a lady. She mysteriously knows on what errand he rides. She knows that he has been asked what many questions want, the question of what women want and what they, what they most desire, and that all have given him answers and not won the right answer. She then informs the astonished king that she and she alone knows the answer he is seeking and that for her to tell him he will have to swear a solemn oath that he will grant her whatever she asks of him in exchange. To this he readily agrees. She beckons him to bend his ear to her lips and whispers into it the answer he is looking for so that not even the trees may hear. The moment he heard it, Arthur knew in his very soul that it was the true answer. He caught his breath in laughter, for it was such a simple answer, after all. The moment he heard it, he was stunned and stilled. That answer that he was given to the question, what is it that all women most desire, was sovereignty. Sovereignty. 
Arthur asked what she would have in return, but the lady refused to say until he had tested the answer on the night that had become his nemesis. So Arthur went off, and after some good sport at the expense of the huge knight, finally gave the true answer, and with it won his freedom. He then made his way back to the spot where the loathly lady was waiting for him. Upon his return, the reward that Dame Ragnell, for that was the lady's name, asked of the king was that he bring to her from his court one of his own knights of the round table, brave and courteous and good to look upon, to take her as his loving wife. Arthur, staggered and repulsed by this inconceivable request, has to be reminded that he owes his life to her and has made a knightly and kingly promise in exchange for her help. Of course, for Arthur to assign the task to someone would be to disrespect the sovereignty of one of his own knights. The choice must be made freely. When Arthur returned to the court and told the full story of his week's adventure to the astonished gathering of knights, his nephew, Sir Gawain, out of loyalty to his uncle, the king, and out of his own goodness, offered to marry the lady himself. Arthur, ashamed and heavy-hearted, would not let Gawain make the vow without seeing her first. So the knights rode out in company the next morning to the woods, and after some time they caught a glimpse of scarlet through the trees. Sir Kay and the other knights were sickened by the sight of Lady Ragnell, and some were even insulting to her face. Others turned away in pity or busied themselves with their horses. But Sir Gawain looked steadily at the lady. Something in her pathetic pride and the way she lifted her hideous head caused him to think of a deer with the hounds after it. Something in the depth of her bleated gaze reached him like a cry for help. He glared about him at his fellow knights. Nay, now, why these sideways looks and troubled faces and ill manners? The matter was never in doubt. Did I not tell the king that I would marry the lady? And marry her I will, if she will have me. And so saying, he jumped down from his horse and knelt before her, saying, My lady Ragnell, will you take me for your husband? The lady looked at him for a moment out of her one eye, and then she said in a voice so surprisingly sweet, Not you too, Sir Gawain. Surely you jest like the others. I was never further from jesting in my life, he protested. She tried to then persuade him, dissuade him. Think you before it is too late. Will you indeed wed one as misshapen and old as I? What sort of wife should I be for the king's own nephew? What will Queen Guinevere and her lady say when you bring such a bride to court? And what will you secretly feel? You will be shamed, and all through me, said the lady. And she wept bitterly, and her face was wet and blubbered and even more hideous. Lady, if I can guard you, be very sure I can also guard myself, Gawain said, glowering around at the other knights with his frightening face on him. Now, lady, come back with me to the castle, for this very evening is our wedding to be celebrated. To which Dame Ragnell replied with tears falling from her one eye, Truly, Sir Gawain, though it is a thing hard to believe, you shall not regret this wedding. Word ran ahead of them from the city gates, and the people came flocking out to see Sir Gawain and his bride go by. All were horrified beyond their expectations. That evening the wedding took place in the chapel with the queen herself standing beside the bride and the king serving as, as a groomsman. Sir Lancelot was the first to come forward and, the, and kissed the bride on her withered cheek, followed by other knights, but the words strangled in their throats when they would have wished her and Sir Gawain joy. And poor Lady Ragnell looked down upon the one bent head after another of the ladies who came forward to touch her fingertips as briefly as might be, but could not bear to look at her or kiss her cheek. 
Only Cabal, the dog, came and licked her hand with a warm, wet tongue and looked up into her face with amber eyes that took no account of her hideous aspect, for the eyes of a hound see differently from the eyes of men. Dinner conversation was feverish and forced, a hollow pretense of gladness through which Sir Gawain and his bride sat rigidly beside the late king and queen at the high table. At last the forced festivities came to a close, and it was time for the newlyweds to go to the wedding chamber in the castle. There Gawain flung himself into a deeply cushioned chair beside the fire and sat, gazing into the flames, not looking to see where his bride might be. A sudden drought drove the candle flames sideways, and the embroidered creatures on the wall stirred as though on the edge of life, and somewhere, very far off, as though from the heart of an enchanted forest, he fancied he heard the faintest echo of a horn. There was a faint movement at the foot of the bed, and the silken rustle of a woman's skirt, and a low, sweet voice said, Gawain, my lord and love, have you no word for me? Can you not even bear to look my way? Gawain forced himself to turn his head and look and then sprang up in amazement for there between the candle sconces stood the most beautiful woman he had ever seen. Lady, he said at half-breath, not sure whether he was awake or dreaming, who are you? Where is my wife, the Lady Ragnell? I am your wife, the Lady Ragnell, she said, whom you found between the oak and holly tree and wedded this night in settlement of your king's debt and maybe a little in kindness. But I do not understand, Samar Gawain. You are so changed. Yes, said the maiden, I am changed, am I not? I was under an enchantment, and as yet I am only partly freed from it. For now, but now for a little while, I may be with you in my true seeming. Is my lord content with his bride? She came a little toward him, and he reached out and caught her into his arms. Content? Oh, my most dear love, I am the happiest man in all the world, for I thought to save the honor of the king, my uncle, and I have gained my heart's desire. And yet, from the first moment, I felt something of you reach out to me, and something of me reach back in answer. In a little, the lady brought her hands down and set them against his breast and gently held them off. Listen, she said, for now a hard choice lies before you. I told you that I am as yet only partly free from the enchantment that binds me. Because you have taken me for your wife, it is half broken, but no more than half. Damaragnell explained that she was now able to appear in her natural form, but for half of each day, and Gawain must choose whether he wanted her to be fair by day and foul by night, or fair by night and foul by day. This is a hard choice indeed, said Gawain. (laughs) Think said Lady Ragnell. And Sir Gawain said in a rush, Oh, my dear love, be hideous by day and fair for me alone. Alas, said Lady Ragnell, is that your choice? Must I be hideous and misshapen among all the queen's fair ladies and abide their scorn and pity when in truth I am as fair as any of them? Oh, Sir Gawain, is this your love? Then Sir Gawain bowed his head, Nay, I was only thinking of myself. If it will make you happier, be fair by day and take your rightful place at court. And at night I shall hear your soft voice in the darkness, and that shall be my content. That indeed was a lover's answer, said Lady Ragnell, but I would be fair for you not only for the court and that daytime world that means less to me than you do. And Gawain said, Whichever way it is, it is you who must endure the most suffering. And being a woman, I am thinking that you have more wisdom in such things than I. Make the choice yourself, dear love, 
and whichever way you choose, I shall be content. Then the Lady Ragnall bent her head into the hollow of his neck and wept and laughed together. O Gawain, my dearest Lord, now by seeing that it was for me to decide, by giving me my own way, by according me the very sovereignty that was the answer to the original riddle, you have broken the spell completely, and I am free of it to be my true self by night and day. For seven years, Gawain and Ragnell knew great happiness together, and during all that time, Gawain was a gentler and kinder and more steadfast man than he had been before. But after seven years, she left. No one knows where she went, and something of Gawain went with her. Did you like that? <laughs> so, what is sovereignty? What is sovereignty? It's certainly not the seeking of external power, um, although to experience sovereignty is fully empowering. So sovereignty, perhaps in its deepest way, is the freedom to be who we really are. The freedom to be who we really are, to, to, realize, to realize and express our true nature, our Buddha nature. It's as uh, Munindraji, one teacher, says, to live the life fully from our depths. And that any other freedom isn't real freedom. I mean, we can have all sorts of apparent external freedom, but unless we are free and we have freed ourselves to realize and live from the depth of what we are, we're still in some sort of an enchantment. We're still in some sort of a trance. So what I like about this, this myth that Gawain with Dam Ragnell is that we can, we can free ourselves and we can help free others. And we do it by recognizing who's here. In a moment that he could really recognize, and he, he got glimmers, he got a glimmer right away that something was calling out to him and it was deeper than any appearance that she looked like. He could feel some heart calling out to him right from the moment of what you might call soul recognition, uh, we begin to help somebody become free. We can see their spirit or soul. We help to, to wake that up in them, let them live from that. And in this deep practice of dharma, when we can really start recognizing that mysterious presence that's listening right now, that heart that in its depths cares, that awareness that's awake, when we can have that soul recognition of what we are, that sovereignty. So what I'd like to do for the remainder of this time is really explore what it means to be free when we, when we feel trapped, when we're caught in our enchantments. And every one of us has some version of being caught in an enchantment, a trance, a spell. How do we discover that freedom? How do we begin to recognize what we are in the midst of it? Because when we're in the thick of it, we feel small and petty and narrow-minded and at war, and the furthest thing from Buddha nature. So the Buddha really used the word trance and and dream, that, that kind of language a lot, which is why, again, I like this myth that he basically described it, that we're all in some sort of a spell where we're taking it as if who we are is this small stealth in this story, moving through life like on a timeline, 
and in reactivity. So an example I'll give you is because uh, a woman called me earlier in the week and she basically described, described a trance. She called from New York and her parents have dementia and they had some months ago had a, spent hours and hours putting together their will. She had helped them. And then they called and told her they had changed her will. And in that conversation, they had totally forgotten the conversation they had had earlier. And they changed in a way that left her less secure. And she f- freaked out. And there they are. It was innocent. I mean, they, they love her, and it was innocent. But she, she snapped, and um, she, as she described it, she flew into a rage, and she demeaned them, and and demeaned herself in the process. And by the time she was talking to me, she was in that, that, like, who was that crazy person? And that crazy person was me, and I can't believe I did that, and I hate myself for it, that whole thing. So she was astonished at how whacked out she was. And most of us know what it's like. It's hard to even tolerate sometimes, once we've gotten over something, how reactive we've been and how we've acted in ways that are not anything like who we really want to be or feel like we should be or could be. So it may be that in some way we've lost our temper with our children or been in a phase of being so preoccupied we realize we really weren't there for someone when they needed us. Or it might be when we look back on an infatuation and realize the incredible delusion in our projections and what we were living out of. And even when it doesn't seem egregious, like we haven't been really hurtful just the fact, and this is the way the Buddha described, he said that we're like children in a house that's burning and we're just kind of going through the motions. Just the fact that these lives are brief and we're all going to die and yet we go through our days in such a kind of small-mindedness with our attention fixed on um, small worries and preoccupations, whether it's you know, being angry because we're in traffic. Everything has the same feeling of this is the end of the world on some level, that, you know, it just, all of it matters. And one description that Alan Watts gave, it's like winding our watch on the way to the gallows, our preoccupations. So this is what, um, in most of the spiritual traditions, is described this dream we're in, that we forget what really matters, and we get caught up in the small stuff. And you can almost see it every day, the kind of preoccupation and worry and ways our minds fixate on whether it's our appearance or what others think or how we're going to get through a particular thing that even, not, not a few years later, even a few days later, is not such a big deal. Maybe you might want to just take a moment and just reflect on today. It's always helpful not to not to judge, but just to sense today. And just to remind yourself of what unfolded today. And maybe there was pleasant, nice things or maybe difficult, stressful things. just to reflect on the quality of inner freedom, that sovereignty of really being at home in your being, of kind of living from the place that knows what matters.
and if there feels like a gap, like there was a distance from that, just to sense what stopped you from really living from a sense of sovereignty, that it's your life, and that this aliveness, this presence is here, aligned with your heart. What was between you and feeling free? So this is an inquiry you can ask in any moment. If you can remember to pause and say, what's between me and being free in this moment? What's between me and that kind of sovereignty of really being at home, connected with with the depth or essence of who I am, this heart, this awareness? And what we find when we inquire, and if we were a small group, we'd actually, it'd be nice to share and say, what's in the way? Um, is, is a um, constellation of beliefs and feelings that keep us tight, that keep our reality shrunken, a kind of forgetting. And the beliefs in that constellation are circle around some, some idea that something's wrong, that um, we move through the day as if something's wrong or something's going to go wrong, and um, that in some way we're not enough. And, that, and there's this kind of compelling feeling of got to do more, got to be more, got to defend against something. If we actually try to relax, there's some sense that, we're, that it's dangerous because we're not being vigilant because something can go wrong. Does that resonate some? It's kind of checking in here. So rather than the kind of presence, and I'm not talking about disbanding all thoughts or planning or activity. Rather, I'm talking about in some way having enough space where we're remembering the big picture. So it's not like, well, we're going to die in 35 years, but today we've got to get, take care of business. It's like, this life is brief, it's precious, and what we are is this mystery that we seem to steamroll over with this idea of a busy self. We steamroll over the mystery. So rather than presence tapping in, touching in, living the moments, even the going to the bank and getting gas, but still that sense of awakeness, there's some sense of controlling, of a self-managing and controlling that we get caught in, some tensing. And the difficulty of that, instead of the sovereignty of, of, of being here, awake, from, coming from that, that awakeness, the, the difficulty with trying to control is that while we can manage certain levels of things, the big things in our life we really can't control. And we can't make peace with them by trying to control. We can't control that these bodies go, that we age, get sick and die. We can't control that everybody we love is subject to that same conditioning. Okay? We can't control that certain moods come. We ha- they're just conditioned in us if we get depressed or anxious or whatever, it doesn't mean we can't find a way to relate to that, but we can't control that those inner weather systems happen. And we can't control other people, which is really a drag, (laughs) But it's true. And we can't control the economy, and we can't control, you know, the the global patterns. It doesn't mean that we can't be a a part of the healing, but we can't manage. 
even when we can control certain levels, even when things supposedly go our way, it doesn't create a deep level of freedom or happiness. And that's what's so interesting. We have an idea that I'll feel free and I'll feel happy if I win the lottery or lose the weight or get the perfect mate or whatever it is, you know, change the way I look, you know. It doesn't work. In fact, I I remember talking about this half a year ago, that all the happiness research has shown that we overestimate how good we'll feel from good things happening, we overanticipate, and we overestimate how bad we'll feel with the big losses. Because we have what's called a kind of biological set point for happiness. And we, even when we dip down because somebody dies or something terrible happens in our life, we seem to come back to that same set point. And even though we spike up when we win the lottery on some level, we return. And this has everything to do with freedom. Because if our sense of sovereignty, of being at home, is hitched to anything specific going our way, anything, it's not reliable, it's not a true refuge, it's not real sovereignty. So the, the inquiry really is what truly allows us to discover that inner freedom because the given is the externals won't go our way. There'll be a time they don't. And it's none of the old patterns of trying to control or manage or fix or improve that will help us discover a radical inner freedom. And rather, this freedom comes when we begin to recognize this soul recognition, recognize who's here. And that takes slowing down and paying attention. So if we want that freedom... There's this process, and this is what all the different spiritual paths teach. Like, how do we really realize the who we are? How do we see through the disguise of our own ideas of self, of what we are, and how do we see through the spell that other people are under? Because everyone you meet is under a spell some of the time and acting out. And if you fixate on how they're acting out, you know, how that particular person is is doing their fear-based behaviors or their greed or their anxieties, whatever. And if you sense who you are based on how you're behaving or misbehaving, you're seeing, like Dom Ragnell, you're seeing the spell incarnation. You're not seeing the soul that's there. So this whole path is about slowing down enough so we can see who's here and trust that and start to live from that more moments. And Really, there's a few different stages of what lets us see through the veil because it's thick. I mean, for most of us, when we're feeling bad about ourselves, it seems very convincing that this self is acting in very unappealing ways. You know, this self is eating too much and is really self-centered and is really being nasty to others. And it feels very real. And yet it's a spell. And the freedom is in deepening attention so we can see through it. So the first layer of seeing through it, the way the veil is maintained, what fuels the spell is our incessant thoughts. Our our ongoing thoughts and the stories we tell ourselves keep 
the veil, keep the disguise there. And it, they're really basically the beliefs that we have, these core beliefs that fuel the thoughts. And those beliefs, for most of us, as I mentioned, if we believe we're a separate self, there's some sense of something's missing, that we're not enough. It's very existential. It doesn't mean we're going around every day going, I'm not enough, I'm not enough, something's wrong with me. I mean, it's not that blatant. There's just an inner compulsion to in some way keep trying to be different, feel different, have something different happen. But the core belief, something's wrong with me, something's about to go wrong, and in a heart way, the core belief is, therefore, I'm unlovable. Often it takes the shape of feeling I'm unloving, So the idea is not to vanquish the thoughts. That's one of the big misunderstandings of meditation that we're trying to eliminate thoughts. I just saw a little cartoon with two monks sitting there together like this and one saying, are you not thinking what I'm not thinking? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway... So the idea of vanishing thoughts is not it. But I want to spend some time on talking about thinking because really probably the most powerful thing that happens when we start to meditate is we have an intention towards remindfulness, which means we start catching that we're often thoughts and there's a little more of a capacity to remember that here-ness and then catch on to the fact that the thoughts are kind of this invisible film that's always running through, but it's not it. It can be useful. It's certainly necessary for surviving, but it's not the larger truth. So the challenge is that um, that we tend to believe our thoughts, and it creates a lot of misery. I remember um, David Audubon once said, "If there's a difference between the bird and what the field guide says, believe the bird." <laughs> you know. <laughs> You know, can we shift from this full kind of immersion in our thoughts as being what it's all about to really trusting our senses and this equality of hereness? Because the truth is that we really believe that our thoughts are the real thing. Just a, a little story that I that I've loved. It's uh, I shared this a few years ago. About a century or two ago, the Pope decided that all the Jews had to leave Rome, and naturally there was a big uproar from the Jewish community. So the Pope made a deal. He would have a religious debate with a member of the Jewish community, and if the Jew won, the Jews could stay. If the Pope won, the Jews would leave. Uh, the Jews realized that they had no choice, so they picked a, middle, a middle-aged man named Joseph to represent them, and Joseph asked for one addition to the debate. To make it more interesting, neither side would be allowed to talk. The Pope agreed. The day of the great debate came. Joseph and the Pope sat opposite each other for a full minute before the Pope raised his hand and showed three fingers. Joseph looked back at him and raised one finger. The Pope waved his fingers in a circle around his head and Joseph pointed to the ground where he sat. The Pope pulled out a wafer and a glass of wine and Joseph pulled out an apple. The Pope stood up and said, I give up. This man's too good. The Jews can stay. An hour later, the cardinals were all around the Pope asking him what had happened. The Pope said, well, first I held up three fingers to represent the Trinity. He responded by holding up one finger to remind me that there was still one God common to both our religions. Then I waved my fingers around me to show him that God was all around us, and 
he responded by pointing to the ground to show that God was also right here with us. I pulled out the wine and wafer to show that God absolves us from our sins. He pulled out an apple to remind me of original sin. He had an answer for everything. What could I do? (laughs) Meanwhile, the Jewish community crowded around Joseph. What happened, they asked. Well, he said, first the Pope said to me that the Jews had three days to get out of here. (laughs) I told him that not one of us was leaving. Then he told me this whole city would be cleared of Jews, and I let him know that we were staying right here. (laughs) Yes, yes, and then asked the crowd. I don't know, said Joseph. He took out his lunch, and I took out mine. (laughs) So we live in different realities based on our thoughts, and there's some consensual reality. But if we investigate, what we're going to notice is that the thoughts that we typically run through our mind are often not thoughts that are conducive to true freedom, thoughts that do not inspire us to soul recognition. They're not thoughts that really help us come home. And for many of us, they clearly create suffering. Many of us, if we watch our thoughts, many of us, there's an ongoing complaint, and usually it's about ourself, and it reaffirms that spell, that enchantment, that trance, where we're identified in um, this small deficient self and we don't recognize what was in the myth called the true seeming that, that spirit, that radiance so the challenge is how to start recognizing the, um, the deep beliefs and, and for most of us we run into challenges early in our life where we feel in some way wounded not understood, not loved and the translation is something's wrong with me It could be some um, abuse like incest and we think it's my fault or a parent leaves and and there's a divorce and a parent leaves and it's my fault. And it's not just a belief that's mental and this is what's important. These beliefs are in our muscles and our body. So it's not so easy that someone can say, oh, just see, that's that's not a true belief. Our body believes it. So the first step is to recognize that the beliefs are there But then we have to be able to feel what's in our body. Feel what's in our body. Allow it to be there. Really feel it. So this woman I told you about, I want to take the story further, that had lashed out in her parents and called me and felt this enormity of shame. And it played into this really deep belief. And the belief was, they don't care about me. And why should they? Look Look at how I am. Okay? I'm not loved and I'm not lovable. And so, so she had the belief. She named the belief, but then she stayed with it. And this is what I mean, that it's not enough just to get, oh, I don't think I'm lovable. She felt it in her body. She felt how her, her heart felt pressed and squeezed and that kind of sinking feeling. And as she was able to stay with it, and this is what I call allowing, she allowed the feeling to be there. She stayed with it and allowed. And then she found this sorrow that she was living with this, that her life had been imprisoned by the sense of others don't care, I'm not okay. And so there was this bigger sorrow holding the fact of how many life moments she had lost to that underlying kind of idea that I'm not okay. And when that sorrow really 
came to its fullness, there was a real compassion there. And that compassion was really a space of compassion. And as she understood it, there was a shift. She went from what I call the trance of, I'm an unlovable self, I'm I'm not loved, to this soul recognition of, oh, I'm that space of compassion. And yes, there's all this conditioning and beliefs and feelings going through, but what I am, this is the soul recognition, is the space of presence, of compassion. So she came home to truth. This is really the gateway to sovereignty. It comes because we, we know we're in a spell. I mean, there's not one of us that doesn't recognize that as much as we can sense that these hearts are loving and that this presence is real in us, we spend many moments of our life caught in a kind of reactivity where we're blaming and judging and feeling encumbered and oppressed and victimized and small. We know that. So the sovereignty comes when we sense that smallness and then feel and sense the beliefs and feelings in our body to really feel that. There's a remembering, a soul recognition. And the more we recognize the soul, and I'm using the word soul, the Buddhists don't use the word a whole lot, I like it, but you know, you could also say the more we recognize this kind of innate presence, this tender, awake presence that really is our essence, the more that becomes familiar, the less we're caught in the trance. So reactivities flare up, but we go, oh yeah, oh yeah, okay, that's the conditioning, come home again. And we're back to that sense of sovereignty. There's still pain, there's still fear, there's still stuff that's happening, but there's a larger sense of being that can hold it. And we can live from that larger sense. We can, like um, Sir Gawain, when he kind of really came home to more presence, say, you know, I see you and I see that the wisdom in you can make the choice. He acted wisely from presence. So I think one of the big questions that comes up for us is a sense of, well, how do we act on this planet? And what does it mean to to be in touch with who we are and act wisely? And there's a lot of questions of how do we make decisions and so on. And the truth is there's no recipe, but the pathway is this soul recognition to some way come back to recognizing I am this presence, this kindness, And then the behaviors come out of that. They express it. For this woman I told you about that had lashed out on her parents, by going through that process of seeing the beliefs, feeling the suffering in her body, coming back home to that compassion and recognizing that's me, that compassion, she was able to then talk with her parents in a way that she, they could, she could feel was workable and harmonious. So what happens, the more that we remember what we are, and, and there's an allowing, the more that we get adaptive with inevitable changes that come up. So we get, if we're aligned with, with our heart and with our awareness, we lose a job, 
or somebody betrays our trust in some way, or there's an accident, or we get a diagnosis. And there is, because there's an alignment, because we're tapped into that more universal sense of radiance and heart, there's this capacity to move with life. There was a study I read about that described that those that age most happily, that have the most inner freedom, are really adaptable people because inevitably life changes. So there's an adaptability, there's this flexibility, there's a, they're supple enough to bend and dance with the winds. So I, I consider this expression of sovereignty a kind of grace, that people that have that inner freedom have a kind of grace so that when the winds don't blow the way we want them to, there's a kind of capacity to move with that because there's a knowledge of who we really are. You know, the Dalai Lama met with some teachers some years ago and they asked him what most the students in the West needed to remember. And his response was to really trust the power of our hearts and awareness to wake up through all circumstances. That trust is an expression of sovereignty, that we, that we really trust and recognize who we are. And then we have the freedom, whatever circumstances arise, to adapt, to be aligned. I once heard a metaphor that it's like a straw that's in the Gulf Stream and that when that straw is in reactivity and trance and not aligned, so to speak, it gets just all swirled around and bounced around. But if that straw is aligned with the current, then the Gulf stream moves through it. And it's like when we're aligned, when we can pause and sense the core belief that's been running us and open to the feelings and then open to the presence, we become like that straw that's aligned again. And we're kind of, the universe flows through us. Our actions come from that universal wisdom. We're tapped in. So the, the path really is this presence that allows us this soul recognition, remembering really who we are. And what I found is those that trust and know who they are can see the divine in others and help others to trust who they are. That makes sense, right? It's, it's, there's a contagiousness to it. So another short story for you was about a man in... Um, New York, a Buddhist practitioner who did a lot of the metta, the loving-kindness practice, and really felt at home in the who I am is loving, you know, that lovingness, that, that tender presence. And as happened, and this is a true story, he was on a small side street in Soho, and a disheveled man with a scraggly beard and dirty blonde hair accosted him and demanded his money. So Phil gave him over $600 that he carried in his wallet. The mugger shook his gun and demanded more. Stalling for time, Phil handed him his credit cards and the whole wallet. Looking dazed and high on some drug, the mugger said, I'm going to shoot you. And Phil responded, no, wait, here's my watch. It's an expensive one. Disoriented, the mugger took the watch, waved the gun and said again, I'm going to shoot you. Somehow Phil managed to tap in and to feel and to, to, to look at him with the eyes of loving kindness. 
He said, you don't have to shoot me. You really did good. Look, you got nearly $700, you got credit cards and an expensive watch. You don't have to shoot me. You did good. The mugger, confused, lowered the gun slowly. I did good, he half asked. (laughs) You did really good. Go and tell your friends you did good. Days the mugger wandered off, saying softly to himself, I did good. I did good. So I really love that story. And um, it's not, the message isn't that, you know, if some, some really crazed drug, drugged person comes to attack us that we will have the power to talk them out of it. That's just not the message. But the message is that even when people are very caught in their suffering and very caught in acting in ways that cause suffering, very caught in their own self-aversion, it's possible if we have this capacity for soul recognition, if we know how to trust who we are and look at others and see what's there, it's possible to remind them. Just our kindness can remind them. Because truly who each is, truly is sourced in that presence. Maybe very wounded, maybe very confused, maybe very dangerous, but truly each being, that, that radiance, that awareness, that love lives through them, just buried. So, so our practice really is to, just as in this myth, to begin to see through the disguise, our own. And it takes pausing. It takes pausing and when we're most reactive, it takes a real kindness to stay with and stay with. But if we're willing to pause and pay attention we will come home to a presence that we will discover is what we are. I invite you to, through your day, to pause and just sense, if you can, the presence that's here. In some practices, it's just that that inquiry, I am, just the words I am, and sense the I am, and it's not a self, it's a presence. So that right now, It's that silence that's listening through you, that mysterious silence. And it's that presence that's aware of sensations. And it's got that tenderness that really can let this world touch and live through us and just feel a natural response of care. Get to know the presence. Recognize the presence that is what you are. And the more you do, the more your very words and your actions, your prayers, your thoughts, everything will come from that awareness and inevitably ripple out and touch the world. Some of you might notice if you're new that at times here we'll put our palms together and say the word namaste, namaste. The meaning of the word namaste is, it's a way in in Asia of, you know, bowing and greeting. You know, in, in this country we put out our hand and shake hands and supposedly the ritual came because we were showing each other that we didn't have a gun in our hands. But in Asia, namaste means I see the divine in you. 
And we bow, and if we bow to a statue, it's really we sense the sacred that's really being represented by that statue. And if we bow to each other, it's because we see that radiance and awakeness and an inherent kindness. It's a beautiful tradition. So in a way, that is the um, kind of expression of this soul recognition, that we become more and more able to find ourselves caught and stuck and in a spell and an enchantment and slow down enough until we come home and we can in some way see again and say namaste, the spirit that's here, the presence. Or we see someone else suffering and struggling and we can stop and get that even if they're acting crazy or mean, that deep down that being too wants to love and be loved, wants to feel that they're good. Take a moment, let's just reflect together, if you will. We'll just close with just a few moments practicing this soul recognition. And it always starts with pausing and just letting yourself arrive right here. And just sense what's happening in your body, your heart. And allow it. Feeling your breath, feeling your presence. And you might bring to mind someone that you are close to or involved with where there's some pattern of reactivity where you both go a little bit into a trance, a spell, where you react to each other's disguises. Not something where there's traumatic conflict, but where there's some irritation or judgment self-consciousness, anxiety. So you might sense the situation where it comes up. And what's difficult about the situation, just you might really pay attention inwardly and sense what's so hard about this, like what it, what's really going on inside you, maybe what you're believing about, what they think about you or what you think about you. And let yourself feel the feelings that are there when you're reactive. might be a closed down or tight or anxious or hurt. And just to know this is, this is what we're calling the trance or the spell and this is just the human conditioning and see if you can offer a real presence, a very kind presence to the human conditioning that's here. For some, it helps to put just gently put your hand on your heart and just offer a presence with a slight touch. It's a very forgiving presence that, that 
allows, it's nobody's fault that these feelings come up, that these beliefs are here. But there's a power to just recognizing the spell, if you can recognize what's going on. And just offer some kindness, just sense what happens as Sir Gawain offered that kindness and presence to Lady Ragnell and kind of trusted her, trusted her in the end to find out what she needed. Just offer that presence and sense who's here behind the reaction. Sense the heart, the goodness, the awareness that's here. So there's kind of that soul recognition. Feel your presence. And sense if you can sense the other person and and their reactivity and see their behavior as part of the disguise, the spell that they're caught in and that they too want to love and be loved, want to feel good, feel goodness. Can you sense the soul there? So that in some way you can feel that spirit of namaste, of bowing and honoring your souls, even though there's this reactive dance going on. And then just to bring your attention fully to your own experience right here, take a few full breaths. This freedom we seek is really who we are. It's this awareness and love that's here. And so we have this inquiry, is there anything between me and feeling this freedom, really entrusting myself to this? Is there anything between me and feeling free right now? And there may be, and that's just an invitation to to be kind, that whatever arises to say yes, a deep allowing. Saying yes can dissolve the veil. Saying yes to the fear, the anxiety, the sadness, the confusion can dissolve the veil and reveal the soul. close as we ended our meditation with this poem, White Dove. In the shared quiet, an invitation arises like a white dove lifting from a limb and taking flight. Come and live in truth. Take your place in the flow of grace. Draw aside the veil you thought would always separate your heart from love. All you ever longed for is before you in this moment If you draw in a breath, 
and whisper yes. Namaste, namaste, namaste. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.